Please recite this affirmation with me. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Om peace. Amen. So today we continue with lesson 13. We got almost through it, but there were some wonderful concepts that I didn't get to last week, and I didn't want to go on without them. So I don't know whether we'll spend the whole um, session here on 13 or not. We'll see what happens. Before I begin, any questions or thoughts or comments from anything from before? Um, Sarah? Uh, just a comment on uh, rereading it again when Swami uh, made uh, the comment to Taramata about what Master had said about he wanted the uh, was it he the, wanted the Bhagavad Gita published by Christmas yeah then and then it, that set this whole thing in right. motion. It seemed like I thought, gee, I might say something like that, and would that be a horrible thing? I mean, it seemed kind of out of proportion with what happened. Oh well, that. Interchange didn't cause the difficulty between himself and Tara. It was rather that Master took it very seriously because Master knew what was going to happen between him and Tara. Okay. And it, it, it you know, it didn't seem like that much, but it was a, it, it, when Swami looks back, mm-hmm. he sees it as, a, as one of Master's very subtle ways of helping him to understand that there was a lot of, going to be a lot of karma to face here or there was going to be a very intense experience, because the knowledge that Master knew what was going to happen was very comforting to Swamiji. It made him feel more certain that it wasn't really he who was out of touch with Master, but it was still Master's hand. I mean, Swamiji, uh, when he was expelled from SRF and was feeling so devastated by it, and he wrote to Anandamoy Ma in India, and, and she wrote back, Take this as Guru's grace. And Swamiji said much, much later, he said it was that that was the last thing. He felt he was able to take it as. But looking back, and you see how, um, and on another occasion that Swami writes about in Elsewhere, he said there was only one time when he, Master, and Tara were alone together. And he writes about it in some book, maybe it's The Path. But he, he, he talks about it being a very odd scene in retrospect. Master was telling a humorous story. Swamiji found the story completely humorous. Tara felt, you know, remained completely aloof from the interchange, refused to participate in it as a humorous story, just seemed quite um, unwilling to relate to what Master was doing, and Swami was totally engaged. And it wasn't even so much about Tara as just a demonstration to him of how complete, what completely different realities they were in. And there was something Swamiji said always very peculiar about that, but much later he reflected that it was... Again, it was Master sort of sensing what was going to happen and just putting very slight hints in front of Swamiji. Um, in a sense, it's interesting because the um, affirmation is so simple. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with thee. Attunement is such an interesting word here because this is really, and I'll, I'll go back and talk about this, it's like being in tune with the vibration of spirit is the, the entire reality of the spiritual path because everything in creation is vibrations and we're either vibrating according to our own egoic preferences or we're vibrating in harmony with um, a higher, a higher um, frequency, so to speak. And everything that we do on the spiritual path, devotion, tapasya, uh, meditation itself, is entirely to change our vibration. Because if we change our vibration, then we are something completely other. A few weeks ago I was talking, using as an example, the difference between habit and something that has become your nature. You know, by by willpower, one can sort of hold one's vibration in check, or by willpower create a new vibration sort of temporarily, but there'll be a tendency to fall back into whatever the habit is until such time as one is really 
um, pushed it so repeatedly and also um, absorbed the karmic lesson so dynamically, just like when you're learning a new piece of music, um, if you're singing alto part in the choir, there'll be a time where, the, where the, you'll just keep slipping into something else. You'll get taken up by the sopranos or you'll just randomly you know, sing some other notes that aren't related. But then there'll come a time when you simply know the melody. And no matter what's going on around you, you can just keep singing that melody because, I mean, that part, that harmony in this case, because that's simply, everything in you is wired to sing that part. And so our, our consciousness um, has certain habitual vibrations of selfishness, of fear, of ego identity, of you know, just all those things. Plus, we have the potential <clears throat> to simply shift those vibrations so that they just sing the single note of Om. And of course, if they're just resonating in harmony with Om, our whole experience of everything is different. So everything comes down to attunement. And Swamiji writes, wrote years ago in this little pamphlet called A New Dispensation, which I don't know if that pamphlet has ever passed around anymore, but it was, it was really a masterpiece, just a few pages. <clears throat> and he talked about Master's path being a new dispensation, meaning, uh, you know, uh, uh, the divine has sent a special messenger. It's not just a continuation of business as usual, because it's the shifting from uh, Kali into Dwapara. There's a, a particular push right now. It's a time, he said, when you can make particular progress because of that. But one of the things he talked about, the whole pamphlet was really about attunement. And it was in that pamphlet that he introduced the concept of this ray of the divine. Last night in our um, discussion, we were talking about the word ray. It was then that Swami introduced it because he was trying to, to impersonalize it, to make it specific, but make it impersonal. And he was also trying to get us, as, as devotees, to, to essentially visualize it in the right way so that we could be in tune with the right thing. And so he talked about um, this line of gurus being a particular ray of the divine. Like, you know, the sun has many different rays. You, you have the same sun, and you can see the rays emanating out in all directions. Sometimes you'll be someplace where the sun will be doing that exquisite dance, where there it is, and you can just see the rays, or people make paintings. And it's a very specific thing, how light will come down in a particular way. So thinking of this whole line of masters as a particular ray doesn't elevate it above any other ray, but it does sort of give us a focus. And you, you realize you can stand in the ray. We made up the phrase, stay in the ray. That, you know, don't hesitate, just stay in the Became the uh, kind of a, a joking way of talking about staying in tune. But he wanted us to understand also that even though you might have these um, silhouettes, so to speak. You have the silhouette of all our line of masters standing in that ray, and therefore when the light comes through, just as if you were looking at, at light through a keyhole, you would see a keyhole-shaped light. When we were in uh, Goa, you know, this, this resort where we've gone to stay with Swamiji a number of years in January, it's a beautifully designed resort, and it's very large in acreage, and they have a lot of walkways through this, this long, uh, grassy area that parallels the beach. And um, it's sort of on a large scale, some of it. And so they had these um, ceramic stucco sort of lanterns, you know, shaped like with nice curved lines, um, lamps on pillars all over the place so you could walk at night and not have trouble. But they took a, a kind of a pretty shape of a lantern solid, and then they cut oval openings into the solid uh, stucco. And then the light is, it was particularly golden, the whatever kind of bulbs they used. So everywhere you would look, you would see these beautiful oval, curved oval um, sections of pure golden light. I mean, it was just absolutely beautiful in the night, you know, with the ocean and everything there. And it was just a plain light bulb but because they put that casing around it, it made a plain light bulb into this just beautiful pattern. And that's exactly what our masters are. Our masters are a silhouette that's cut and, and it stands in front of that ray, so the ray shines through it. And then what you see is a Yogananda-shaped silhouette. 
or a Christ-shaped silhouette. And because of that, it has certain characteristics. You know, if those, that oval pattern had been square or triangular or something else, it could have also been lovely, but it would have been very different. It, it, the light would have been the same light, same illumination, but it would have give, created a completely different impression than that oval happened to create. So Yogananda can create a different impression than Jesus, than Lahiri, than Sri Yukteswar. But then what he's also saying by realizing that what we're really experiencing is the ray coming through that, then we can also be the silhouette standing in that ray. And as soon as we stand in that ray, it's, it, we become as much the ray as the masters are. I mean, it may be in fact that there's nothing but a silhouette for them and then therefore the ray comes through unimpeded and for us it might just be a hole here and there, you know, in the um, solidity of our vibrations that don't let allow as much light to come through. But nonetheless, we are able to stand in that ray and then become, in a sense, equal to the masters. It's a, it's a, a marvelous, wonderful image. Well, in that um, pamphlet, coming back to that, talking about the ray, he, he really talked, really for, in, a, in a more direct and meaningful way than he'd ever talked before, about the fact that it all comes down to being in tune with that ray. And he said, even a, a conscientious effort to meditate, even dedicated hours of meditation, and he actually referred to some specific instances of individuals who had lived in the community. He said, and he, he, I, th- I believe he even referred, without naming names, to one individual who had meditated, you know, fiercely, you might say, for many years, but as he put it, without a corresponding effort to get in tune, in the end, did not make as much spiritual progress even as devotees who meditated much less. But in everything they did, they made an effort to be in tune. A very, and uh, in that, uh, that's, remember Master says, in one of our Sunday readings, so-and-so, such a so person, left the path. It needn't have happened if they had stayed in tune. So-and-so doesn't meditate well, but as long as you stay in tune with me, I will meditate for you. You know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary promise based on attunement. Because what attunement is, is harmonizing your vibration with that of the masters. And what that allows is Jesus' promise to all who received him. Because receiving is, is actually simply not blocking. Because it's not as if Jesus or master or any of the gurus or any, any aspect of the divine that you can think of turns on and off its emanation. You know, it's not like God is sometimes uh, uh, in the creation and at other times takes a holiday. You know, like those, those little prayers, from, letters to God from children. Dear God, what happens to creation when you go on vacation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just sort of assuming he would take a break. Of course, it never happens. It's in, in every single instant for all of eternity, and it's amazing to contemplate, the divine is is. Is, is totally, infinitely present as much as it ever is or ever will be. And the only difference is the degree to which we have harmonized our vibrations and therefore can receive that. That's why it says, to all those who received him. And receiving is nothing more than attunement. And attunement is, of course, a lifelong practice of constantly taking every impulse, every thought, every feeling, and trying to, to sense whether or not it's in harmony with that higher reality. It uh, makes the spiritual path really lots of fun because it also removes in a very, I find, useful way the possibility of ever doing anything that actually uh, requires us to feel separated from God. Because if it's only a matter of attunement, it really doesn't make any difference how far we've uh, strayed. Because all we have to do is put ourselves in attunement and whatever has happened ceases to exist because all it was was an expression of a certain vibration and as soon as we withdraw from that vibration, 
it literally ceases to exist. So it's, um, you can, uh, that was my uh, conversation with my friend once when she was uh, being so crabby for such a long period of time that I was commissioned to try to um, find out what was bothering her. And she expressed this great concern because she was meditating so badly, she said, which seemed to justify her being just an absolute pill all the rest of the time. And I laughed and said, you know, my response to that is entirely different. If I'm having a terrible period of meditation, I feel I have to be as good as I can be all the rest of the time. Um, I was only half joking with her, but it's like merely because some aspect of your life isn't running the way you want it to, that doesn't mean you have to feel out of tune. That's, a, that's like a second choice that you make out of the situation. So even if you're sad or upset or crummy, you know, Lord, let everything I do reflect my attunement with Thee. You know, one comes down to the fact that the only prayer you have is really to just be in tune. Because if you're in tune, everything else follows from that. For one, it will become your nature to be in harmony with Dharma. And, and one Swamiji also was asked, how can you tell if you're in tune? He said, the presence of joy. He says, joy is the infallible sign of attunement with God. And that doesn't necessarily mean pleasure or happiness. It means an underlying awareness that even in the midst of whatever may be going on, I've never been abandoned. God is always with me. And that's Swamiji just speaking of which we have several times of his, that period of time when he was expelled from SRF. Right after he was expelled and he talked about just being so devastated, just lying on, the, on his back and uh, on top of the bed in his parents' house where he was suddenly found himself after 14 years in the monastery. As he put it, just lying in bed essentially praying to die. But he gradually became aware, and he said it was a surprise even to him, that underneath the misery there was still an unbroken stream of joy. It's a, it's a little hard to, you know, to imagine it, but it's like we live on many different levels. And it just depends on which level we want to tune into. If your soul is given, uh, embraces some tremendous challenge, and that challenge is going to be the making of you, even if you're miserable when it's happening, do you think your soul is unhappy? When I very first came to Anand in the first six or seven months, I faced what in retrospect was a fairly significant test. I didn't... Um, I never saw it as a test because the, the outcome was never in doubt for me, but I had to make some fairly serious decisions in order to just stay where I was. And those decisions were quite emotional for me. And as I've shared with many of you, my first Christmas was actually spent, a lot of it was spent in tears. I was cooking in the kitchen and I remember stirring these giant pots and then holding this big paper towel in front of my eyes while I wept, you know, making Christmas dinner and blowing my nose, you know, and then just like this, and Christmas Eve, just crying all through Christmas Eve. But all of that just went out of my head. I literally did not even remember that that happened for six or seven years. All I remembered was, was the complete bliss of that first Christmas. But you see, both things were happening, because I, I really remembered when it came back to me, it came back to me completely, not the feeling of dismay, but the visual image of me weeping all over the place, which was a clue that I must not have been entirely cheerful. <laughs> Except my soul was in its spiritual home. It was being introduced to Jesus. It was experiencing the possibility of devotion. It was renouncing the world. It was making all the right choices. It was facing difficulties and rising to them. And like, so was I happy or unhappy? You see how superficial my unhappiness was? And you can project that, honestly, into any situation. Tragic death, you know, torture, betrayal, anything. If one understands that every situation is a challenge to our attunement. Because there's only one thing that's ever going on. Either we are going to be in conscience, conscious remembrance of the presence of God and receiving Him, and therefore being given the power to rise to infinite consciousness, or we are going to tune in to something else. Because we are nothing. This is, and this is, this is all about this lesson. This is exactly the part I wanted to talk about. There's nothing happening here. This world is only vibrations. I mean, we have to just say that to ourselves over and over and over again. Even 
matter is nothing but vibrations. You don't even have to get this from the Vedas. You can get it from physics now. There's nothing there. It's only vibrations. And what to speak of our consciousness, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but all we're ever experiencing is vibrations. So everything that happens to us is like a, 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 like a game of hide-and-seek with God. God will hide behind some very difficult experience and say, can you still see me? You know, can you still see me? Can you still see me? And you answer yes or no. Can you still receive me? Are you still feeling my vibrations behind this? Remember the story that Master tells about St. Anthony in the desert? How many years he was there in the desert and he lived alone in the caves and meditated and he was so austere and then people found him so he went deeper into the desert and finally he went into the, in, in Egypt he went into these old underground tombs and just lived down there by himself for, for decades just meditating and, and there was nothing external in his world so the great battle between uh, the temptation of not being with God and the desire to be with God just took place within him and um, Satan really personified and threatened him and, and uh, the carvings on the wall which were some of them were were beasts and animals they came alive and they threatened to tear Anthony limb from limb unless he gave up his concentration on the Lord and Anthony remained absolutely firm despite all these terrible fears I mean it's just a thrilling story and finally when Satan threatened to just crash the whole tomb down on him and Anthony remained firm then suddenly all the darkness dissipated And Jesus was there. And Anthony said, Lord, where were you? (laughs) It was an honest question, like, why didn't you come sooner? And you hear Master's voice on the tape telling the story. Yogananda says, Anthony, I was just the same with you. I was just the same with you. you One knows, truthfully, one can be inspired, but one hardly knows where to put such a thought. You know, one reads the life of such a, a great saint all by himself for decades, just going through this experience and holding firm. And then Jesus says, Anthony, I was just the same with you. But it's, that's the divine teaching. We're either in tune with it or we cease to receive it and then we believe that we have been abandoned. And, and what we have to understand, and this is more for next week's lesson about the real battle of good and evil, because it's fascinating in Lesson 14. But you know, a friend of mine who um, died of brain cancer, and relatively young, you know, late 50s, beautiful home, husband, children, you know, her children were mostly raised, but she left earlier than she certainly had planned to leave, and um, it was not an easy renunciation for her. And uh, she struggled for a number of years, quite a few years. Um, always, from the outside, it seemed apparent that she was not really going to ever live a normal lifespan. But you know the way cancer patients can be. They go through a tremendous amount in order to hold on to the body. And she held on to her body for quite a few years more, which was a, a very good thing for her to have done. But finally, it it came to the point where the doctor told her, there's nothing more we can do for you. And just by intuition, without knowing that, just a few hours after she got that news, I just dropped in. And so I caught her right in that transition. And she was very upset. She was crying. She was a very brave woman, but she was, at that point, she was very disconcerted. And I remember how sweetly and sort of childlike she was when she looked at me. I know it sounds silly, she said, but I thought I was going to live, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, how, how powerful those impulses are, you know. I'd always thought she was going to die. I didn't mean to be negative, it just seemed self-evident. I really thought I was going to live. I know it sounds silly, she said, so dear. And then she sort of gestured around to this beautiful home, indicating pictures of her family. How am I ever going to leave all this? She, you know, was very, very upset. And uh, 
I said to her, with the confidence, God knows where it comes from. I think you just stand in the ray, and then it comes out. I said, don't worry. I said, you're going to have to walk through a wall of fire, which is what you're walking through now. But on the other side of it, you'll see. You'll be able to let it go without a backward glance. And so she had some tough time. But not long after, and definitely when she was really at the end, I just remember her turning back to me and just blissfully saying, you were right. (laughs) Just like that, you were right, she said. So the soul is being challenged. The ego is unhappy. Are you really unhappy or happy? Which one is true? I love it the way Master says, when a baby is born in the material world, everybody rejoices because the incarnation has started. In the astral world, they weep because, oh, he's, he's gone from us. Our companion has gone into that world. Exactly the same as that in this world when someone dies, we weep on this side. And in the astral world, they say, oh, here you are again. That's why people's near-death experiences is just so... I remember someone also asking Daniel Brinkley, who specializes in this after-death stuff, just saying, because he, he would talk like this a lot. And finally people were coming to him and says things like, I miss my mother so much, doesn't she miss me? You know, that sort of feeling of... And he said, well, um, from that perspective, the separation, and the way he said it was so sweet, he said the separation lasts this long, and he looked sort of big-eyed like this, and then he blinked his eyes. He said, that's how long the separation is. He said, it's kind of hard to get really upset out of a separation that lasts that long, you know? Which is, our bodies are separated, but we are not separated. That was uh, what we were talking about last night. I think I'll bring that in here because it was so interesting. In, in Swami's book, The Time Tunnel, which is a, a, a work of youth fiction explaining the meaning of time, he talks about, I brought this up in this class several times, that time is not linear, but time is a circle. And past and present and future are all simultaneously present, circulating, moving around, uh, encircling the point in the center, which is now. So what we were talking about last night, which was so interesting, if you're standing in in the center of a circle, every aspect, every point on that circumference is equally close to you, isn't it? And you can, you can participate in any aspect of that circle that you choose to participate in, and there's no, uh, there's no closer or farther away. And, and uh, so if you're in the astral world where the illusion of time is diminished, here, because things are fixed and solid and appear to be linear, we think, well, now I'm here and then I'll be there and I was here and then later I'll be there and we were together and now we're separated. But if you're spiritually inspired or have a little bit of insight even from the astral plane, depends how advanced you are, you realize that past, future, it's all just happening at the same time. So how do I feel separated when that which unites me has never been touched because we don't stop loving each other just because we die. You know, the mother who sacrificed so much for her child, do you think she just really doesn't care anymore? It may not be uh, possible, it may not be appropriate for her to continue in that role, but that willingness, insofar as it is a genuine selfless love, if it was merely selfishly oriented, it doesn't have an enduring quality. But as long as it's genuine, it remains present. That's how, as we were talking last night, um, when you die, the loved ones who have died before you can be present for you, even though they may also have gone on to incarnate somewhere else. Because it, it's an aspect of their higher nature that, that is drawn back by its love for you, like the superconscious part, Whereas the ego part can go on right here and the superconscious part which exists on higher levels can come and greet you without... Because somebody, somebody said they'd heard, well, you know, you just hang out in the astral world until everybody that you love is there too. That's a really, really long idea. 
and dooms all of us to only move as fast as the lowest common denominator, <laughs> which is really not a true thought. Isn't, it, isn't that fascinating? But you see, it's all a matter of what you're in, we're in tune with. Because if we're, we're so um, focused on the linear reality of the ego's present that we're not able to perceive it like that because that's what we're in tune with. But that doesn't make it less true. It's all happening. And when we're more in our superconscious, then you know, that's what gives us prophetic powers, intuition, past life memories, because we begin to vibrate on a level where all of those things are happening. Very interesting, huh? You know, some people are psychic and they kind of, without actually being spiritually advanced, they, can, they get a little wormhole kind of and they kind of tootle out and can pull out little bits and pieces of that reality. And some of them are saintly and some of them are not. Some of them have just the, developed the ability to receive a certain little piece of reality like that. It's very interesting. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts about all of that? That was all about the... Um, Okay, the, the par- other part of this lesson, and I don't think we're going to get to 14 tonight, is um, that I really wanted to talk about here, and, and we were dealing with it. And then he, he says in here, this is all about keeping your feet on the ground, and then Swami's premise in this lesson is that there's no such thing as solid ground. So to keep our feet on the ground is to keep our feet strongly anchored in the concept of energy. He, he's having fun playing with this. Whereas the, the old meaning of keep your feet on the ground, as he put it, was when people couldn't get anywhere unless they walked. <laughs> so keep your feet on the ground meant to keep walking. Now you can get in a car, an airplane, a bus, all sorts of things. And more profoundly, keep yourself deeply anchored in higher truth. That's the most practical thing to do. And in that context, he says, modern science is looking more and more like a page out of the Vedanta teachings. To the physicist, nothing is substantial, for nothing is solid. This is just like, I mean, most physicists walk around as if this were solid earth, but they're dealing more with just this, at least as an idea. The true substance of matter is energy. Okay. And the true substance of energy is the willpower and ideas that brought energy into manifestation. The true substance of those ideas, finally, is the vibrant power of divine consciousness. Now that, um, what all this means is that in the effort to achieve material success, it would be wise to project energy into everything material that one does. One is even wiser if he takes the concept still further and tries to harmonize energy with ideas and awareness that bring him calmness and inner joy. So this is the paragraph that I really wanted to uh, talk about tonight. Um, so, you know, this this simple point can't be overemphasized because we tend to get focused on what is or is not happening. I mean, that's sort of, we, we tend to always be looking at life from the wrong end of the telescope. We're looking at the circumstances that have finally manifested and whether we like them or not, whether we have money, whether we have a job, whether people are cooperating with us, you know, whether we like the place that we're living in, whether we have friends, all of these um, manifested realities. And we have a desire to change them one way or another. But, and I've talked about this at different times, but we don't really go to the fundamental cause. And so Master puts it, Swami puts it right here. The true substance of matter is energy, and the true sub- substance of energy is the willpower and ideas that brought that energy into manifestation. You know, it's very interesting when you think about our path because um, Master made one original, well, I mean, made many, but he made a distinctly original contribution to the science of yoga, which is energization exercises. That was something that simply did not exist until he created it. You know, he's re, he re-articulated a great many other truths and brought them into a relevant expression for this particular time and place and for us as American disciples and so on. But energization exercises was a new method And the other thing about energization, which is so interesting, is Master is reputed to have said, when someone asked him once, if you were alone on a desert island and you could only have one technique with you, which one would you recommend? And naturally one would think Kriya. He said energization. Because if you do energization properly, you will discover all the rest of the techniques. I mean, that's really quite a statement, isn't it? 
And also because certain fundamental teachings that Master came to bring, we are shifting from the age of matter into the age of energy. That this is a transition time in which we can begin to think in an entirely new way. And all of us are caught up in that tradition, tr- transition time. I was, uh, had the opportunity today to uh, speak to someone who, whose uh, close relative had just died a few days ago, and we were talking about planning a memorial service. And I just made the mention, because the death was somewhat unexpected and people are disconcerted by it, that just one of the characteristics of this age is just a, a complete wrong relationship with death. We're just not um, in any right relationship with it. I mean, it used to be the Catholic Church had a system that we either went to hell or purgatory and or heaven, and but that was not really much better. But now we're sort of so focused on material, on the material world, that we get very disconcerted if someone exits from that material world. Of course, death has always been a heartbreaking reality for human life. That's one of the reasons that the Buddha renounced the world, is when he found out about death, he said, what are we doing if we're not getting ready for that? If all of this is going to end in the dissolution of our ability to perceive and enjoy. Why aren't we focusing more on that? So as we move now into an age of energy, we can talk a lot more in ways that just simply weren't possible to talk about when we were talking about an age of matter. I mean, many of the things Jesus said, I mean, think what they really believed. They believed that the the body was buried and then on the day of judgment, the, the saved shall rise And that meant that they would just stand up again in these physical bodies and then they would get to go and celebrate in these physical bodies. I mean, it's it's a bizarre teaching. It's really bizarre. But they didn't have any other way of understanding it because, as Swamiji said, it's hard for us to appreciate just how collectively uninformed the planet was, how difficult it was to look through the illusion of matter in the time of Kali Yuga, to sense the energy. Only a few were able to. And then they mostly, like Anthony, just went away. Because they just couldn't, they couldn't live in that affirmation of mundane reality and also in the spiritual reality. But now that um, science is beginning to inform us, and more than that, consciousness is rising. It's, it just is an interesting factor about this. Uh, Swami Kriyananda and Sant Kishavadas, as it happened, this... Indian teacher, he's passed off the planet some years ago, but they were having lunch together at Swami Kriyananda's um, Crystal Hermitage. This is like, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, and I happened to be present, and they were having a discussion about special diets and things like that, fasting, the kind of um, austerities that people would take on, often ill-advisedly in the context of ashrams, American ashrams. And they had this very interesting discussion that they were basically saying this age is too gross for us to be able to actually create spiritual perception merely by purifying the physical vehicle. It's less gross than it was in Kali Yuga. He said only in a very high age, when the illusion of matter is so much thinner, then just by a little bit of purification of the physical body, then you can really uh, transcend it. But in this age... Uh, meaning Dwapara Yuga, devotion is what works. And that's, that is why Master really never taught you know, that kind of intense physical austerity. In the age of Francis, where matter was so dense, um, the, as Swamiji said, life itself was so hard, in order to do any austerity, it had to go you know, more extreme, because just everyday life was austere enough. And if they wanted to create a sense of renunciation, they had to back off even further. But in this age, it's not yet refined enough to focus on physical purity, but devotion because it shifts the energy. And the energy is where we're trying to go. So the, the whole point, the whole teaching now, is to find our way to higher consciousness through the medium of energy. So he gives us the energization exercises because what that allows us to do is that allows us to use our willpower to gain mastery over our energy. Now, if the entire material world is a manifestation of energy, and if the power behind energy is willpower, 
You see, the energization exercises themselves are a fundamental key to everything else that we're trying to do. Swamiji has often lamented the fact that he says the energization exercises are a, an impressively underutilized technique. He said he finds, as he travels around the world, that he's been disappointed to see how many people let that one go, not appreciating what a profound tool it is. I've often you know, spoken to people who are struggling with health or struggling with finances. You know, do you energize regularly? And do you energize not merely um, going through the motions, but actually energizing, training the power of the will? Now, if the entire material universe is the result of the right application of willpower, you know, what better way is there to guarantee our success, both spiritually and materially, than by training our willpower to be able to focus in the right way and create what we're, we're, we're desiring to create? Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to take a little break right at this point, then we'll go on. Just interestingly about energization exercises, a friend of mine that I knew when I was first coming onto the path was a world-class athlete. And he actually got interested in the spiritual path and lost interest in being an athlete, so he never really practiced both disciplines at the same time. But having spent many years of his life developing his athletic ability to an extremely high level, um, after when he learned the energization exercises, which was, you know, just after he quit, he was so annoyed, he said, because he said the energization exercises was what he had been looking for the whole time. And I have no way of gauging this, but he, he just declared, if I had had these, he said, no one could have beat me. Because at a certain level, as he explained it to me, you know, pretty much everybody's more or less the same. And it, it, it's just a question then of, of what you bring to bear. It's not like you have different equipment <laughs> once you're at a certain level of conditioning and a certain level of skill. It's what you can bring to bear to, to pass through the, that. And you, I mean, just imagine anybody who attains a high level of proficiency must have a certain degree of concentration, but people don't really understand where the energy comes from. And they don't really understand how the energy flows through the body, except they kind of find it accidentally. I, I've often jokingly talked about that um, video that I saw once that was a recording of that movie. Now it's 25 years ago when they, the first time they did, I think there's been a second version of it. They did that song, We Are the World, and they did it in response to some global um, necessity, whatever it was. So it was put together very quickly, and it was all of the, just the most well-known pop singers, popular singers. And each one of them sang exactly the same line, and they took turns, and then they not only put out the recording, but they also put out a video of the recording of the recording. And you would see each of the different um, singers, mostly I put my hands like this because they had earphones on and they were listening as they do when they record, and then they had the opportunity to give their verse. And, uh, and you watched each one try to infuse their little piece of it with the you know, um, unmistakable stamp of their own personal charisma. And all of them, without exception, tried to infuse their verse with um, their power by getting really, really tense, <laughs> you know. And you could see the tension in the ego, and there was a lot of tossing of the head because the medulla was tight, and you could see them squinching their, their bodies because they, they knew what they needed was energy, but they didn't have any idea how to really find that energy. And, you, and they still managed to do it, but you see they were working against the reality of where that energy really comes from. And, and the energization exercises work with the inclination to try to get energy by tensing, but, but it's also that you, know, you tense and relax is the conscious control of willpower. Will I be tense? Will I be relaxed? I increase it with tension. I release it by relaxing but then I keep the flow of energy in there. It's all under my control. That's why it does you absolutely no good to go through the motions. You know, if you're just doing energization exercises, you know, like this, which you see people doing, you know, just flopping around, you might as well not do them, really. I mean, there's maybe some tiny benefit from just having kept your word, but you're really not doing energization. You're just doing sort of a, a musicless dance. Because energization is the conscious energizing 
in control of the willpower. So um, now in, uh, in this lesson, what, what, what Swami's really trying to get us to understand is that in everything we do, what we must understand that it's the quantity and quality of energy that determines the result. And that quantity and quality of energy comes out of our willpower. I mean, think about it. Self-mastery, which is to say willpower, is everything, isn't it? I mean, all of our successes or failures are based on our ability to have the right quantity and quality of energy. And we also have to appreciate, and this is what uh, Swami says here, um, that, uh, that it's the ideas that brought that energy into manifestation, and behind that is the vibrant power of divine consciousness, or simply to say consciousness. So, above all, what we have to pay attention to at all times is what kind of consciousness, what kind of ideas infusing me? Am I just doing this work, hating it all the time because I feel like I have to, because I have no choice because I have to work, but if I didn't have to come here, and then we can't understand why things don't go well for us. You know, or people are abusing me, or this work is boring, or I'm much better than this job. And the more we infuse our situation with that kind of consciousness, with that idea behind it, then that's the quality of energy we put out and that's the kind of manifestation we have. Swamiji says in here, actually it's in the next lesson, he makes the statement, it's nice to work with people that you can get along with, but if you find yourself where you just don't have anybody congenially around you, congenial around you, and you can't get out of that position, you have to consider that it's a challenge to your (laughs) self-development. And, you know, many times we find ourselves we're very spoiled in this country because we've been so wealthy for so long. We developed this idea of just shifting around all the time. We're very fickle in America. Master said, you know, Americans are so fickle. They change their jobs, their homes, their husbands, their wives. He said, just at the drop of a hat. You know, that we, don't, we, we haven't been trained as much in endurance. The positive side of that, and I want to say it, is that we're very creative. You know, I... I I once remarked between a friend of, and, and I that she had tremendous endurance and I had a lot of creativity. And my creativity was a direct result of having little endurance. <laughs> because I had so little endurance, I had to always find another way to do something <laughs> if I found it difficult. And so faults become virtues. You know, I, I've worked when I real, I've worked since then to create more endurance, but not at the expense of my creativity. But still, it's always about the quality of your energy. So... What we really have to understand is, one, if we want to change anything, we have to work on our energy, which means we have to work on our willpower. And the second thing is, whenever that quality, the consciousness behind our energy begins to shift, we might as well stop what we're doing because it's not going to bring the result that we want. And it's a very um, challenging reality. There's just no question about it. Um, Amara? Go ahead. Do you mean when it starts to move in a negative way? Yes. Okay. Whenever your energy begins to become negative, your attitude begins to become negative, everything that's going to follow from that is going to have the quality of the essential magnetism that you're putting out, which is the essential energy that you're putting out. That's why it's a supreme responsibility that we have is to take care of our consciousness. And that's why so often all through this, he says, you know, just take care of your consciousness. Everything will take care of itself. But the other side of it that he really wants us to understand is we need to consciously project the right kind of energy into what we're doing. You know, if we're, if we're making a meal for someone, we want to consciously project into that meal, you know, harmony, kindness, fellow feeling, love, health, vitality, instead of just sort of doing it. Oh, I'll just cut the vegetables, I'll just make this, I'll stir it up in the pot, I'll throw it on the table. We have to infuse whatever we're doing with whatever the consciousness is that's appropriate for that. If we're in a retail store and we're dusting the merchandise, we want to infuse every item that we're dusting with this sense of of magnetic harmony, of this living vibration that's looking for its home. You know, that this pair of earrings is just looking for the perfect pair of ears that it's supposed to be on. You know, this book is just waiting for the mind that is seeking the truth that's exactly in it. I mean, you can just dust or you can infuse everything you're doing with the right idea and therefore the right energy and then it will begin to manifest in that way. Swamiji, um, 
I remember when we were in uh, Dallas, this was many years ago, Houston, doesn't matter where we were, but I was off traveling with him, and Ananda was trying to get itself out of poverty consciousness at this point. This was like 1975, 76, really a long time ago. And uh, somehow or another, Swamiji and I were talking about prosperity and Ananda's inability to pull itself out of what was really a very poor state at that time. And he just talked about the power of positive energy and infusing things with the dynamism that we needed. He says, every year I say we're going to have 200 guests for Spiritual Renewal Week. And everybody says, no, no way. And he says, but if I didn't say we were going to have 200 guests, he said we wouldn't even have 30. And so it was, it was an interesting comment. It wasn't like on one level... But he said, if everyone visualized that we were, if everybody could commit themselves with the same magnetism that he was committing, he said, we would have 200 people. But it's like he has to put out so much more magnetism because he's always having to counteract the um, unwillingness on our part to infuse what we're doing with the energy and the right idea behind it to bring about the result that we want. It's a very fine line. I mean, it's a, it's a, because you have to act in a way that isn't presumptuous, that is really a result of our real ability to magnetize. But if we don't try, if we don't develop our willpower, if we don't consistently come back and try to put out that kind of force, we never then develop that kind of magnetism. Um, In uh, The Essence of Self-Realization, I was remembering this wonderful section, and I'll just read it as an addendum to the lesson. It says... To understand karma, because this is a discussion of that too, you must realize that thoughts are things. The very universe, in the final analysis, is composed not of matter, but of consciousness. Matter responds far more than most people realize to the power of thought. For willpower directs energy, and energy in turn acts upon matter. Matter indeed is energy. Willpower directs energy and energy acts upon matter. Matter is nothing but a pattern of energy. Okay, now, let me just, where was I trying to think with the thought? Oh, that, this is his whole um, thing that he's also talking about, he meaning Swamiji in this case, in Lesson 13, about the necessity to be solution-oriented. Because being solution-oriented is this dynamic belief that it really doesn't matter what's happening now, there's going to be an answer to this. What, however difficult this might be, it's not a question of how difficult it is, it's it's going to resolve. To be solution-oriented is not to say that we're not facing a difficulty, it's just always holding the orientation that that's all right because it's going to resolve. It, you could call it faith in God, if nothing else. To be problem-oriented is to think, oh, well, then there's this, and then after that, who knows what's going to happen, and then maybe the thing after that's going to be worse, and if we go there, who knows? And in fact, you might have nothing but all of those same difficulties. So it's not, as Swami's often told us, being unrealistic or having just wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is, oh, well, it'll all be fine. We don't really have to worry about any of these things. Which oddly, Swami says, if you have too much wishful thinking, you really, you really end up negative thinking because you're always anxious about what might happen. And so you're just hoping that it won't happen, but your real orientation is anxiety about all those things that could happen, do you see? Whereas if you're genuinely solution-oriented, it's just that there'll be an answer. We'll just go forward. I don't know what's going to happen, but it'll be okay. That's another way of saying faith in God, but it's more, it's more um, specific than that. And so when we have the, the, whatever thoughts we have, thoughts are things. Those thoughts go out. And if the thought that's going out always is there's going to be a way to solve this. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. I was um, touched once. I mean, this is a very difficult situation, but people who, are, who have been kidnapped or um, held hostage and, you know, people who are in those kinds of professions where this might happen to them actually receive training. And one of the things is write your autobiography while you're in captivity. And because you write your autobiography as if this was over. And you write, you write looking backwards to this having ended. And you just keep this very powerful thought in your mind that this has ended. You're, you're moving your, your consciousness toward the point where there's an end to this. That's, why, that's how Master also says, 
Um, never, never define yourself as ill. Never allow the disease to define you. Even always affirm your health, even if you die trying. But, you know, it can't be that you pretend you're not dying if you're dying, because I've had that experience with a couple of people, and it's really not helpful. If you're dying, it's, it's helpful for people to be able to talk about the fact you're dying. You can't just pretend you're not dying. But you affirm health in the sense that even while you're dying, there's this belief in the, the harmonious resolution of everything, that the body dying is not the death of anything. When my same friend that I was talking about earlier was dying, she sort of asked me, what do I, she asked me, how, how do I deal with this conundrum? Because I'm trying to be affirmative, I'm trying to have positive thinking, but it seems pretty obvious my body is going to die. I said, well, just, you just concentrate on the light. No matter what's going on, you always just feel the light. Feel the light in your body. Feel the light in your consciousness. Feel the light all around you. And that's your affirmation of health, even though the disease is taking your body. You're not, you're not defining your reality by what's going on in your body. You're always affirming the health of, of your body, even, because it's really nothing but light, even if these cells have gone berserk for a little while. And if the cells have gone berserk, you have to behave accordingly. You can't stand up if you can't walk anymore. It just doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean you have to feel like you can't walk. You keep solution-oriented. It's, it's not as difficult as it sounds once you kind of get in the flow of it, because thoughts are things. And you don't want those. You don't want to die with the thought that um, I'm sick, because then you'll have a very powerful thought that I'm sick, and you'll become sick. You'll be sick again. You don't want to be sick. Your body can fall away from all kinds of diseases, but you're, you're, you're oriented toward the light. So he says, the stronger the will, that's where the energization comes in, the greater the force of energy, and the greater, consequently, the energy's impact on material events. A strong will, especially if combined with awareness of the cosmic energy, can affect miracles. It can cure diseases, can make a person well, it can ensure success in any undertaking. The very seasons are obedient to the man of strong willpower and of deep faith. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, there, there just simply is no limit. And that's why, you know, in so much of spiritual life, the concept of tapasya even arises. Because tapasya is, really means energy control. Um, pranayama, just being able to direct your energy. So we use our willpower to... Um, consciously choose, even if the physical body is demanding or the emotions are demanding or the mind is demanding, we develop a strong will that chooses its objective and goes forward. And whatever obstacles there may be, you just go forward. This is why Swamiji says, always keep your word. You know, if you say you're going to do something, do it. Do not allow anything to keep you away from that. Don't let even circumstances be bound by what you say. My word is my bond. That's one of the affirmations we have. I love that. My word is my bond. So also is my resolution. The whole uh, affirmation, which we say once a year, every time we come to that, the words, I've stumbled over those words for so many years, I finally decided, let me try to get inside of why he said this. You know, if I give my word, I'm bound by it because that's part of how I develop my willpower, is that once I say it, I simply will carry it out. And so also is my resolution, which means even if it's just within myself that I've made this decision, I will hold to it. And you know, it's not an easy thing to do because we often have a sort of aspiring little desire and we'll make a commitment to do something. And then after a while, it doesn't seem convenient to us. And then we'll sort of think about why we didn't really have to do it. It makes you be more careful about what you promise, that's for sure. Okay. Even unenlightened human beings shape their destinies more than they themselves realize according to the way they use their power of will or don't use it. For no action is ever an isolated event. Always it invites from the universe a reaction that corresponds exactly to the type and the force of energy behind the deed. Action originates in the will which directs energy toward its desired end This, then, is the definition of willpower. Desire plus energy directed toward fulfillment. 
This is willpower, desire plus energy directed toward fulfillment. And everything in the manifested world is the result of energy, and energy comes from willpower. So it all comes back to the energization exercises. Amazing, isn't it? But especially if one does those energization exercises, I mean, it comes back to a lot of other things. But it's, it's a very interesting fundamental technique he gave us to do. And if one does those energization exercises with conscious, deliberate will, you just find that everything in your life, you're, you have the capacity to pull the energy forward by the use of your will. And if you have that, you can become master of everything, of your emotions, of your feelings, of your um, ambitions, everything. It's really quite remarkable. At least eventually you can. Fascinating, huh? Now, I, guess I just want to say one more thing before we give up on this lesson. In the meditation for this lesson, Swamiji gives us such an interesting piece of advice which is really worth thinking about. Before giving lectures, I used to sit near the lecture hall and meditate on what each particular group of people wanted and needed to hear. He would always go to a lecture. He doesn't do it so much anymore. I think he does, he's so in tune with what he's doing. He doesn't have to. But, but often, he'll say, I mean, like, especially if it's in a place that he's not used to being in. Like when he was in Los Angeles last summer at the Ford Theater, you know, I, I, I want to go early and where can I meditate? And then there has to be a room, you know, there on location near where he's going to speak, but not where he's going to speak, so he can meditate ahead of time. He says, I always meditate on what each particular group of people want and need to hear. Because what I would say had also to be something that inspired me, I would offer both these thoughts up to God and to my own superconsciousness and try to feel what to say. Usually this is all I would do to prepare for a lecture. Now, When I reflected on that, because especially when he goes to the next page, what you say has to also inspire you. Meaning, if those people want to hear, you know, a lecture about, oh, well, what can I think of, about how to attract girls and, you know, find the right lady and get married, that's not really something that Swami would feel inspired to talk to them about, even though that ripple might be running right through the whole group and it might be really something that they're interested in, but it wouldn't be a message that he could sincerely deliver with magnetism because it's not the aspect of reality that appeals to him, that he's in tune with. So he has to also feel, you know, what am I able to give? What is it that will bring the best energy out of me? And then how can we find the meeting place between what they need to hear and what I have to give? And he, he, he talks about how both elements are important. It's a very interesting impersonal way of looking at things. Remember, impersonal is to also be impersonal about yourself. And impersonal about yourself doesn't mean to to completely negate your reality. It just means to be able to be objectively sincere about it. So Swamiji comes with a certain capacity to speak. I often, uh, you know, because I, of course, do a lot of that, the same kind of work, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read whatever the material it is that we have to read, whether it's these lessons or the Sunday uh, readings or whatever it is. And I do, I go through it until I find whatever piece of it um, resonates with me and makes me feel really eager to share it. Because then I know that I've not only found what they may want to hear, but I've also found something that I can, I can give out with sincere energy. I mean, much of the time it shifts by the time I'm here. But that's the, that's the best way to prepare. But it's the same thing, um, just waiting for the inspiration. It has to be an inspiration that also resonates with your own consciousness. So then Swamiji says, every day, sit daily for meditation and try to attune yourself to what you must do, meaning whatever tasks are assigned to you, whether you work in a store, whether you babysit, whether you go to the hospital, whether you have to counsel people, you know, whether you cook... Whatever it is, try to attune yourself to what you must do. Think how mindlessly we just get up and do things. But try to find within that the point where your consciousness resonates you know, with what's about to happen, meaning what is trying to happen here. Lord, what are you trying to do for me today? What is it that you want from me? Try to attune yourself with what you must do to what you want to give and to what you think other people want, need, and can receive from you. 
Isn't that interesting? You know what you have to do, um, what you want to give, and to what those around you need, want, and are able to receive. In other words, you, you take into account the whole reality, the, the cosmic necessity of having to be there, your own flow of energy, and how that energy is going to mesh with all the people around you. And In other words, you try to put yourself in tune. That's exactly the word he used. Realize that these factors will never be exactly the same, meaning what they want from you might not be what you have to give that particular day. Um, Try always in your mind, though, to be fresh and expectant. (laughs) Isn't that dear? Um, You may complain, he says, but this isn't meditation. Well, why not? He said, everything can be spiritualized if it is produced in the right spirit. And then we come right to our affirmation. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with thee. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Especially so much of the time when people feel that they're in inharmonious situations or I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing or I really want more meaningful life. I was born for something else, but this is what I'm doing. Well, if this is what you are doing, try to put yourself in tune with it. Try to feel, what do I have to give? And of what I feel that I have to give, what do people really want and need from me? And then how can I just be in that flow? I had that interesting experience when I was visiting my parents once when they were, it was a few years before they died, but I wasn't naturally in tune with my parents. They just had a whole different set of priorities and realities. And uh, they were fine people. We had a harmonious relationship, but I wasn't naturally in tune with them. And I remember being there once and was so focused on the fact that I wasn't in tune with them that I was about to die of boredom. I really actually thought I was going to die of boredom. I just thought, if I have to stay here another minute, I'm just going to expire. One of my friends said, she lived in the Midwest, Kansas City or something, she said, if I had only a week to live, I would spend it with my family in Kansas City because it would last forever. (laughs) But that was the way I felt. But I finally said to Divine Mother, I can't bear this. I just can't bear, um, I can't bear the actual boredom of it, and I can't bear the, the contraction I feel inside. And so I, I, I realize in retrospect when I read this that, that what I feel I have to give in life primarily is Swami Kriyananda's teachings, which was really not what anybody wanted from me. Um, so I was so focused on what I you know, want to be giving that I was giving nothing. So I just said to Divine Mother, you have to rescue me from this. And it was like, there was just this complete shift of energy. And all of a sudden, I was somehow finding something in myself that I wanted to give that was more of what they wanted to receive. And I was able to just engage with them. And and actually, everything was different from then on for a long time, I mean, years. You know, just just, just, I just found a way Um, to be in tune with myself and also in tune with them. Because I tried to be, instead of not trying to be. You know? It's very... I mean, many people will do that sort of thing intuitively. Um, But but you can always magnetize it more. So this little meditation at the end there is really a marvelous piece of advice for just every morning, every day, just finding ourselves right where we're supposed to be, just like Swami Kriyananda delivering a great big lecture Go and meditate. Feel what, what's, what's inspiring you and what of what's inspiring you is you can give to them and try to get in tune with that whole flow. See how different everything would be? We could be so happy all the time <laughs> if we just took the trouble to be in tune. Okay, I think that'll end.